Hey everyone, welcome to REI 360 Show, episode number 24, Chris Haddon, Jason Balin. Today we have a special guest, he is an expert in multifamily apartment buildings. His name is Ben Leibovich, and he's going to be on right now. Hey everyone, Chris Haddon, Jason Balin here with REI360.net and hardmoneybankers.com. As always, special guest today, happy to bring onto the show Ben Leibovich from JustAskBenY.com. We're going to get into his story very shortly, but he has a very, very cool background, um, where he came from, how he got into the business, and what he's up to now. Um, Ben, thanks for being with us. Pleasure to be with you. Thank you for having me. Um, would you mind giving a little background for our audience about you and how you got into uh, the business and where you are now? Uh, yes, I would. I don't want to talk at all in this interview. <laughs> Jason, I, I just, somebody has to give you some hard time. I've seen some of your other interviews, and all the guys behave so well, and just I, I have to do something different. So I, you better watch out. <laughs> You're gonna cut this out, aren't you? Um, I was born in Russia. I, uh, I started playing the fiddle when I was five. I came to America uh, in 89. Uh, we immigrated. I, um, I went to College Conservatory of Music at Cincinnati University uh, back then. And I think probably now it's still like a top five school uh, for classical musicians. Um, and, uh, you know, I, th- I think it was, it was a, a either end of first year or beginning of the second year of my master's degree there that I discovered I was diagnosed with a condition called multiple sclerosis. Um, uh, you know, my, my body kind of went haywire uh, for a period of time. And so, you know, they did all the tests, and that's the best they could come up with is, is, a, is a diagnosis of actually a probable multiple sclerosis. Uh, because some of the tests were very indicative and some of the tests were not and doctors covered their asses and so there it was, you know. So um, what the definitive thing for me was I'm laying in this hospital bed and this doctor is approaching me and he's like looking at these MRI images of my brain, you know, and, 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 you know, his eyes go up like this, like he was wearing glasses. I remember it very vividly. And, um, you know, he looks at me above his glasses. And he says, I don't want you to panic, uh, but these images are consistent with multiple sclerosis. And I didn't know what that was. And he said, we don't really know what that is either. Uh, But you probably won't be able to move uh, for much longer. So that was kind of the essence of it. So here I am, Fine motor skill, violin playing, professional violinist, right? That's what I do. That's the only thing I know. That's what I've done since the age of five. It's like my entire essence, the way I see myself. The only thing I ever wanted to do, right? And I'm being told that, you know, I don't know when, maybe three years down the road, maybe two, maybe 23, but I won't be able to move. Regardless, it's kind of difficult to plan on a career that requires me to move if I can't move. So that, that, that's kind of a, kind of a nice delta, you know, to be working with. So I started studying and, you know, of course there was depression and, you know, then the depression went away. And when the depression went away, I started to try to figure out what my options were. And uh, eventually it led me to real estate. Um, uh, 
primarily because I realized that real estate doesn't require money, uh, that if you have appropriate kind of skills and knowledge, that money will find you. Maybe that's not entirely a true statement. You have to put yourself out there for it to find you, but the point is that there's a marriage that can happen if you have the right kind of skills uh, and the right kind of knowledge. So that realization led me to real estate, and um, I've, been, I've been in ever since, and I've been full-time, if you can call what I do full-time, because <laughs> I don't work too hard. Sure. It's terrible. I shouldn't admit it. But what, type, uh, what types of deals do you currently focus on? Are they the same as before, you know, re, you know residential, single families, apartments? Yeah, yeah. I, I, do re, I don't do single family uh, at all. I won't touch single family. Of course, that's a function of where I am in Ohio, in Midwest. I just don't believe in single family here. Um, I do multifamily, and just the deals that interest me now are just a little bigger, a little better, a little more complicated, uh, require payroll, things like that. Uh, so it's, it's the same kind of conceptually thing where a value of the deal is a function of cash flow, but just bigger uh, than, I, than I did years ago. Ben, if you could tell us about your first couple deals. Uh, the first deal I did was a driving for dollars deal. Um, I went out, my wife and I actually both, we got in the car and we started driving and we saw this little single family house. And we looked in the windows. It was a good area. It was, you know, a B minus, C plus area in the town where we live. Uh, certainly desirable enough for normal working people to live, you know. Um, we looked in the windows and it was just gutted to the wall. Most walls were there, so we, you know, it wasn't got it to a stud, but like the kitchen cabinets weren't there, uh, the toilets weren't there. Interestingly, later we discovered that all of that stuff was in the house, but it wasn't attached to the house. So it, it, somebody started a rehab and ran out of money, essentially. So, uh, you know, I, I, my wife actually called the owner, said, "Do you want to sell?" He said, "Sure." said, how much? said, I don't know, 55, 60. She said, well, can we meet? Anyhow, by the time we met, I negotiated a deal in that house. Um, something in the 30s. I don't remember exactly what it is. But, um, but I'd set up a line of credit uh, to do these things. But back then, my line of credit was $25,000. So it was... It was enough for me to put some of my money together plus the line of credit to buy this thing. I think, I think it was 32000 32, To buy this thing, it was enough, but I wouldn't have had any money to rehab it. So I called a friend of mine who happened to be uh, uh, an accountant, like a con controller for one of the uh, corporations around here. He was, he was at that time better off than I was. And uh, I said, you know, if you finance this thing to me, um, I'll get you paid when we get out. Uh, and he instead decided to buy me out. So I ended up flipping it to him. Uh, I figured the house was worth between 85 and 90. So that was, a, you know, would have had a nice profit margin on a flip. But back then, I didn't know a flip from a rear of a camel, uh, you know. And so I decided, you know, somebody's giving me money, so I might as well take it and just, you know, whatever. So I took the money, and he ended up. Uh, not keeping the house. He thought he would keep it for a rental. He ended up selling it for 90. Sure. So I was right on with my valuation on it. Um, obviously, you know, I would have kept it, uh, but he decided not to keep it. He frankly gave me too much money 
<laughs> to to make sense out of it as a flip. But he offered it. I didn't, you know, I didn't. He made the same amount of money that I did, but he should have made twice as much right. on a flip, you know. So that was the first deal. And the second deal <laughs> was, was a deal I lost about 20 grand on. So um, it was an old house. I call them pig, pigs in the Midwest, you know, the kind of shit that's like, you know, 85 years old. It's got wiring with paper towels around it. It's got, you know, plumbing that like, oh, my God, foundation, everything. So it had like 35 windows. I mean, at $300 an opening, 35 windows, that's a rehab just right there, just the windows. It had two bathrooms. It had a roof. It had AC, a complete HVAC system. It had like everything. Like, what the hell do I know? I didn't know a stud from like, you know, whatever, a shingle. So it's like ridiculous, right? So I got stuck with a bad contractor who recognized I didn't know shit. And the first thing they did is rob me of $200, cost me $2,000 in a gas bill in the middle of the winter with furnace blasting and the windows open. Uh, and that was a nice learning experience. That was, that was college tuition yeah, for say, Ben Lakevich. College right there. That, that's, that, that was college tuition. So I financed myself. By the way, this was right when shit was starting to hit the fan with the um, economy. This was like 2007, 2008, somewhere in there. Right. Um, I think there was another deal in there somewhere. Maybe I bought some rentals. I don't know. But um, yeah, I barely got out of it. I went to the best real estate agent in town at the time, the most volume, the big, like sold everything that moved, okay, and some things that didn't move. She quoted me $120,000. By the time we sold it, it was 110, and the market was starting to look like that, you know, go, go down. Uh, so I was lucky to get out of it. So because of this bad contractor, the margin that I made should have made about a $30,000 profit on the house, but my extra finance charges, which I didn't plan on the extra financing in order to get my private money out, uh, plus, uh, you know, the, the, the decrease in the uh, top line. Uh, basically, I walk away with my shirt on still, but uh, that's it. There was nothing else. So, the, um, the I financed that loss into another property. That's just my propensity. If I finance, so it's okay. And, you know, it didn't cost me twenty thousand dollars in cash. So I financed the difference into something else. It's cash flowing, so that's fine. You know, but it was a it was a learning experience for sure. Yeah. And I don't do flips. Yeah. Not Midwest. I, think a lot of I mean, I, I bought that house for $45,000. I sold it for 110 and I wasn't able to make a freaking profit, okay? <laughs> That's because shit goes wrong and sideways all the time, every day, and a $20,000 margin is not a margin. It's not a margin. On a flip where you are doing $30,000 of work, $20,000 profit margin is not a margin. It goes up in flames just like that, and that's what I learned. So if I could work with a hundred seventy-five thousand to a hundred thousand dollar margin, there's a lot of room to make mistakes and for the economy and this and that and the other. I do it, but I don't want to work that hard for, you know, whatever twenty thousand, fifteen thousand. I mean, I see kids doing that and it's like crazy to me. Let's talk about a little bit how some of your apartment buildings and multifamilies are structured because, to be honest, a lot of that's a little bit different than the guys out here uh, in Washington, D.C. area on the East Coast are doing stuff. A lot of the focus is around here is fix and flips. Obviously, you know, 
you know, wholesale deals, small rubs on that, you know, for newer guys, mm-hmm. that, you know, are trying to get into this game and then fix and flips and then fix and then long-term rentals. Um, not that we don't see apartment buildings types of deals or long-term plays, but a lot of the stuff is, you know, like I said, the wholesales or the fix and flips get you know, decent money and move on to the next one. Right. And then after you kind of get that uh, cash up and you have some money to work with, then you're kind of getting into rentals or apartment stuff. Like on your, mm-hmm. like on your apartment buildings, is there any upfront kind of cash play to throw money in the pocket? Or is it more of, you know, this thing is going to start producing income regularly and long-term starting after like the first year? Tell us how you structure those. Well, okay, so I don't buy anything without value-add component. Yep. I don't, so I analyze everything to the IRR, internal rate of return, right? So I don't care about cap rates. I don't care about cash and cash. I, I mean, I do in some ways, but not the way the people do, okay? I analyze the complete lifestyle, life cycle of the investment. Uh, which means I project my cash flows, I project what the value is, and then that value on the back end, that becomes my saving grace. That's why I'm doing it. The cash flow is nice, and it allows me not to have a job, but you're not going to get from point A to point B strictly on cash flow. You can't drive IRR on cash flow. You're going to have to have that appreciation so that you can take money off the table yep. and live another day and reinvest, and, and either by selling or 1031 or, you know, whatever, right? Refinance, second mortgage, you know, blankets, whatever. You name it, I do it. So uh, if I buy a triplex, um, you know, I buy it for 110 and a month later it's worth 155 uh, that makes sense to me. Of course, you can't do that on the residential side. You have to be working on the commercial side whereby they valuate buildings based on their income. Because the essence is if I can improve the operation, if I can improve the income, and it works the same way in a 300-unit apartment community as it does in a triplex. Sort of. Not quite, but sort of the basic principle, right? So um, that's why I like multifamily. Uh, there's economies of scale, and there is no, uh, you know, the, the, the equity play in the fix and flip just doesn't exist in Ohio. For me, in, in my mind, it's just, it doesn't exist. So, um, so when you're taking chips off the table, are you taking them off because you're getting a bank to do a long-term debt on them? Or you yeah, I, no, that doesn't, uh, sometimes yes. Sometimes I'll do a private loan that's a blanket, a umbrella mortgage, and I'll, I'll wrap a couple of different properties together. Uh, create some cash so I can go out and make a down payment on this one, but this one right here that I'm buying is also going to be worth six months down the road. I may have to season it somewhat. But the thing of it is is that I'm, I'm talking to my lenders and bankers in real time. I don't buy something and then hope somebody underwrites it my way. Yeah, that's, that's the whole premise of negotiation. That's the whole, you know, they have to think it was their idea in the first place. <laughs> you know, I bring them a deal <laughs> And that's that's the whole thing. We negotiate all the time, but that's how fluent you have to be. Like your newer uh, members, your newer audience, younger audience, your, your newbie investors, you're negotiating with everybody, from your wife to your banker to your CPA to everybody. You know, you got to get people to do what you need them to do. I mean, that's that's just the bottom line. When, when we're done here, I have an appointment with my CPA because you know what, I got to get them to do so. You know, I mean, it's not illegal, but I'm not leaving until it freaking gets done. <laughs> you know, I'm I'm not having a telephone call. I'm going in their office and, and I'm not leaving until it gets done. So you have to include people in your thinking process 
so that people feel as though they are part of your decision-making structure. Then there's no surprises. So if I have three months down the road as part of this deal, a refinance that I got to do, then my banker knows about it, my commercial lender knows about it before I buy the deal. He helps me underwrite the deal. Somebody, and this is an important lesson, somebody once taught me, if it's not good enough for the bank, it shouldn't be good enough for you because the bank knows better. You know, you guys are lenders and yeah, you're hard money lenders, but so you're a little more aggressive, but lenders are conservative creatures. They have to be. That's just how it is. You know, it's, if you're not on board, forget it. You know, why do I want this deal? So I can struggle finding some way to finance it. I, I don't want that. That's, that's too hard. I don't want my life that hard. So everybody's always involved. My private money is involved. My bank is involved. Everybody knows everybody. I don't do anything behind anybody's back. Everybody knows what the model is going in. Uh, and of course, the same is true on a syndicated deal. Uh, a private placement, you know, of course, you have to disclose everything. SEC says so, you know. So I just, even, even the private money deals that are not uh, PPMs, I still kind of function the same way. It's like, here's all, all there is. Everything I know, here's what it is, here's what I think we can do, here's why I think we can do it. There you go. You, you play your pass. That's a great takeaway right there, that, that point of involving everyone in your buying process when you're underwriting and everything else, your capital sources, whoever else may be involved. Because as we know, many people do buy a property or put down um, earnest money on a contract and then try to figure out, you know, fire drill, how to finance it, right? Well, and, and, yeah, and honestly, it helps that I've done a few of these. And so people kind of know what I'm about. They know my thinking. They know my... So there are people who say, if it's good enough for Ben, it's good enough for me, count me in. There are those people. Not to say they wouldn't want to look at my underwriting uh, before they actually put money in escrow. Not to say that they wouldn't want to see a report, uh, inspection report. Not, you know, nothing like that. But in principle, yeah, once you get a little down the road, it does get easier. People trust you a little more based on your record. But when your record is a big nothing, you got a problem. Sure. Yeah, of course. I mean, in addition to our, our lending, our private lending business, we also do a bit of, we do some flips, but we do a lot of buy and holds too. And our um, bank credit line is set up with certain parameters. These kinds of properties, these kinds of areas, uh, values, loan to value. I mean, it's set up beforehand. So sure. we can go out and buy, buy, buy as long as it fits the mold and it all works pretty smoothly. And that's exactly right because, you know, I see people go into a bank walking in with like... <laughs> a shoebox worth of like receipts, you know, <laughs> trying to show the banker who you are. No, no, not knowing what the bank's parameters are, what their DSCR is, what their LTV is, what their preferences on everything. I mean, you know, if this bank is interested in financing raw land, good luck to you trying to get a loan for a factory building. I mean, it's just stupid, right? But I see people do that every time, all the time, every day, right? So. I understand what people want, and I only bring them that which I know fits their model, their thinking. And then I cater my presentation in such a way that they can wrap their conservative, non-imaginative 
brains around this deal. And the fact that my name is attached to it may have some help in the process. But if it's too hard, like in my life, if it's too hard, it goes in that too hard pile and I never think about it again. The same is true for a banker. If it's too hard, if you're not, if you're not playing by their rules, stuff that they understand, they're not going to give you another chance. Right. I agree with that. Um, we had this conversation earlier today. That yeah, you have a little wheelhouse, you have a mold that works great, and as soon as something's a little bit different, it comes in. Like when our side's lending stuff, but if we get like an outside the box deal that someone wants us to buy, it's like yeah, we'll pass. But happy to do a loan. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yep. Um, okay, let's switch gears for a second, if you wouldn't mind, Ben. Uh, when we were chatting before we started the show, you mentioned a couple interesting things about the economy and the real estate market and, and market cycles. Do you want to touch mm -hmm. a bit on that? Um, well, I, I think what we were talking about is how stupid investors are, right? That's pretty much what we were talking about, right? Okay. So <laughs> I, I stand by my statement, <laughs> you know, most investors are stupid. Um, there's, there's, there are expenses to ownership of real estate that are not widely known and hardly anybody performers for those expenses. I call them economic losses. There are a lot of them and I, I'm not going to go through a list of them, but when you underwrite a deal, you know, you do have vacancy. You have physical vacancy, but you also have economic vacancy with everything that that entails. Uh, you have loss to lease. You have capex. You have all kinds of things that most people never even think about. So I think what we were talking about is this idea of CapEx, which I think, in my experience, it comes in waves. You're supposed to set money aside every month out of your cash flow to cover a future expense. How many people do that? Like, I... Most investors don't. See, I, <laughs> when I get my rents in, the first thing I do is I pay myself. <laughs> the second thing I do is I feed the CapEx piggy bank. Because I know it's coming. And then whatever cash flow is left, I mean, all of that is part of the cash flow. But the main two things I want to be sure of, that I can hang on to the property, and that's a function of paying myself. That I can fix the property, that's a function of paying CapEx. And then whatever, whatever cash flow is left, it's left. You know, it's like, you know, that's nice, but that's just a bonus, right? right. So because my tenants are paying it off and hopefully it's appreciating and it is appreciating if I force it and that's the only way I buy them is if I can force the appreciation up front. So if I'm buying, you know, a $300,000 property, it better be worth 400000 you know, in six months. And if it's not, why am I buying it kind of thing, you know? Um, most people, most investors, unfortunately or maybe fortunately, aren't sophisticated enough to recognize what all of these losses are going to be in the future. And so they don't underwrite them. And so it's, it's, it compounds and it compounds and it compounds. And eventually you have a critical mass uh, building up in multifamily to where you can't afford to hold on to it anymore. Uh, you become a slumlord because you can't afford to reinvest. And eventually you lose it. And that's where guys like us come in and buy for cents on the dollar. Right. And if you extrapolate that 
with interest rates, the type of financing people put on the property. If you add that risk, okay, onto uh, uh, into the equation, then you begin to understand why we have a period of good years and then a period of bad years. And then the guys come in and buy up the stuff and fix it up again and make it nice and neat and working correctly. And then the big money comes in and, you know, they're pulling money out of the stock market because that's inflated. They're chasing yield and they come in and they buy our property and, and they run it because they, they don't know the freaking thing about running property. So about five or seven years goes by and they're slumlords all of a sudden. They kind of look back over their shoulder and go like, how the hell did this happen? Well... Dude, you think it's cash flow, and Sperry Van Ness will show you that it's cash flow. It's up to you, <laughs> buyer beware. You got to know what, what's real cash flow and what's phantom, what you're going to have to reinvest and all that stuff. Most people don't. Um, and that's, that's I, I think that's why we have cycles like this. That's why we have, you know... I, I buy a property for 300 I fix it up, I put good tenants in, it's cash flowing, and I sell it. And when I sell it, I, you know, take it to Sperry Van Ness or whatever, whoever, you know, MAI Horizon, and, and uh, they sell it on the pro forma. And since most people don't understand anything past the pro forma, then, you know, that's what they get. It's unfortunate. But having said that, there is some logic behind it. First of all, not everybody needs to make money when they buy real estate. I mean, people's agendas are very different, right? Uh, you know, when, when you have certain people that are just looking for shelters, the, they wouldn't even care if they're negative gearing on a property or whatever. So I recognize that. The only thing I'm saying is it's to do it the right way, you can both get the, get the tax benefits and make real cash flow, but you have to buy it right. And there are very few deals out there that provide for that. Yeah, it's, those big companies can't, it's hard for them to buy right because they're not an upfront origination. You know, they need, they rely on companies like you or people like you, companies like you, let you do all the heavy lifting as far as they're concerned, even though we don't agree. And I, I personally don't agree with their model, but at the same time, you're doing all the heavy lifting and they're willing to pay a premium for it because it kind of fits into their mold when they come in after the fact. Sure. <laughs> and, and, you know, and that's fine. And, it also works for them because their cost of money is so much cheaper than my cost of money. So I also understand that it works that way. But the thing I don't uh, – you can't escape for them, from the fact that they don't underwrite to IRR because if their investors knew how to underwrite the IRR for, you know, for the whole period of whatever it is, 5, 7, 10 years, they'd see that there's no money to be made, <laughs> especially not when you discount it to net, net present value of you know, whatever that inflation opportunity cost may be. There's, you know, there's just there's nothing. So you need that appreciation, which means the only way to drive the appreciation is to do the heavy lifting. Sure. Unless you're in landlocked location like Hawaii, San Francisco, you know, there are some places that are just, you, you can buy a shack and sit on it and be a complete dumbass and do just fine and dandy over the course of 10 years. There are such locations. Most of us don't live there. Sure. Right? Yeah. Um, you know, you just threw out a, a couple terms, Ben, that uh, people who are buying and holding real estate are probably familiar with net present value, internal rate of return, all of that. Um, 
in addition to your own acquisitions and everything else, you also do some training and education and software stuff. Can you tell us about that? I have a course. I have one course. I don't do some education. I just have one course that I sell. I, I don't do any consulting. Life's too short to do that. <laughs> I, I have one course that I sell on my website. It's a very inexpensive course. And it, it's not particularly a high-flying course because it's designed for newer players. And I have a software package as part of that course, but it's in beta format. Um, and I thought about making an app out of it, but I ended, just in the end decided maybe not to do it. So it's an executable file. It's kind of cute because the way that I designed it, everything is on one page. So when you plug all of the numbers in, if you change one number, everything else changes. So if somebody is newer at real estate, they are able to see, if I change the cap rate right here, what is that going to do to the rest of the numbers? If I change the cash flow by $50 per unit, what is that going to do to valuation based, you know, capitalized and, you know, that, uh, uh, what do you call it, the, the GRM, you know, all, all that kind of stuff. So it's, it's kind of a nice introductory tool to understand the dynamics of movement of money, how things happen in, in real estate and multifamily. But yeah, the Cash Flow Freedom University is just, it's about 22 hours of MP3 that I, um, created wrote about a couple of years maybe three years ago and it's yeah understanding that I could sit down and explain to somebody in mathematical terms what the IRR is but it takes a certain sophistication to understand those concepts because they require perspective you, you have to understand dynamics because what we do is we take dynamics and express them with numbers and formulas so the formulas in and of themselves mean nothing. They're not going to make somebody smarter just because they know how to calculate, calculate the IRR into an Excel spreadsheet. That doesn't take, a monkey can do that, right? But to know what the cash flows really are, how to discount them, how to predict what's going to happen in the future, that's the perspective part of it. So what I try to do in CFFU is I try to teach that perspective. I try to, you know, things like, uh, do you buy a fourplex with a boiler system or do you buy a fourplex uh, with, uh, you know, baseboard electric heat and through the window ACs? If that's your choice, what do you do? Aside from the fact that you understand what's desirable in your marketplace, what do you do? What are the likely dynamics that are going to happen throughout the lifespan you hold this investment? How do you underwrite that? How do you predict it? How do you discount it? That's the kind of the wisdom. CFFU is about wisdom. It, it's, it's, it comes from a guy who's held property for a little while and kind of got a sense of what happens over time, how the tenants behave. Why do they behave this way? Why does this property attract this kind of tenant, that property attract that kind of tenant? What does that do to the economic losses of the building? What kind of tenant do you want to deal with? That's what CFFU is about. It's basically 22 hours of me talking to people. And there's, there's PDF, corresponding PDF. But basically, it's, it's MP3, just like us talking right now, me talking to people and telling them, this is what you see. Now, this is what you should be thinking. Sure. And I'm hoping to kind of open the window for people about how to think about these things. Um, I, I, I would never try to teach anything 
you know, how to syndicate a hundred uh, unit building because syndication is a completely different model. It's not even real estate anymore. It's a totally different model. But uh, most people don't need that. Uh, real estate is great in the fact that while your friends are working for their corporations and they're going to retire with Social Security and a 401k if they're lucky and who the hell knows what's going to happen to it, if you just buy one, two, three of the buildings and you buy them right in the right location, the right kind of uh, desirability features, if you just do that and over the next 25 years pay them off, you're going to be a whole lot better off than all of your friends. So it, it doesn't take a, a high-flying portfolio to accomplish big changes in your future life. Time is a huge leverage. And time is on your side when it comes to real estate if you buy it right. Yep. And that, that's who CFFU is for. It's just that, you know, for a guy who discovered I, I, I had multiple sclerosis and the doctors were telling me, I, you know, I, you could be like in a wheelchair in the next three years. For a guy like me uh, coming from that place, that's that's why that's why real estate is because you know it's a little tough in the beginning but it gets more passive as you go and and the more you understand and the more you can source out and and the more perspective you have you keep yourself out of trouble it's not a wheel that you have to rediscover every day show up nine to five and all that kind of stuff so that's the power of real estate um, and it doesn't take a lot because there's a lot of leverage it doesn't take a lot. 100% agree. Yep, absolutely. You know, they say the best time to buy or the best time to plant a tree, I think the proverb goes, is 20 years ago. And the second That's right. time is today, right? That's right. That's right. Good stuff, Ben. Where can everyone find you? Uh, ben at justaskbenwhy.com is my email. Uh, www.justaskbenwhy.com is the website address. Uh, and uh, I'm on Bigger Pockets a lot. You probably guys are familiar with Bigger Pockets. I'm a, I'm a writer on their blog. I've been doing that for about two or three, I don't even know how long, three years maybe. And um, I do a lot on Bigger Pockets. I know those guys well, and, and I, I like them a lot. So I'm, I'm over there a lot. If I'm not on my blog, I'm over there. <laughs> good stuff. Anything else you add for, for Ben? Yeah, I think that's it. Summed up a lot of really good information. Yeah. Good interview, Ben. We really appreciate you being on. And um, yeah, if you ever want us over on you know anything you're putting together, we're happy to do that. And I'm sure, sure. We'll, we'll chat again soon.